You're listening to America's Web Radio, your voice in the matter. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. And welcome to another hour of news and information regarding mental health, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments for and insights into the causes of mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way endeavoring to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and to better inform the general public about mental health issues. And this podcast was pre-recorded for initial airing over America's Web Radio on Wednesday evening, March 23rd. And welcome back again to Psychiatry Today. Uh, far and away the biggest news in the world of mental health actually relates more to the field of pain management, and that's the new guidelines designed to limit the long-standing use of painkillers, but it certainly has major mental health implications beyond just management of pain, because people with chronic pain are often quite depressed, and uh, those things just go together hand in hand. Um, it's depressing to be in pain all the time and to be disabled by it, and furthermore, uh, depression worsens the intensity and the severity of the pain, so they aggravate each other and feed into each other, and indeed, there's been a lot of anxiety for people who are sufferers of chronic pain uh, with the announcement of these new strict guidelines and coming with them the promise that their doctors who prescribe their pain medicine are now going to be uh, following the guidelines and have to be more strict in limiting their access to strong narcotic painkillers. So let's take a look at the new guidelines uh, addressing a growing epidemic of opioid, that's uh, narcotic analgesics or painkillers, overdoses, and abuse of the prescribed painkillers in the United States, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta on a week ago Tuesday released voluntary guidelines that instruct primary care doctors to sharply deter use of the medicines for chronic pain. Overprescribing opioids largely for chronic pain is a key driver of America's drug overdose epidemic, said CDC Director Dr. Tom Frieden. Sales of the prescription therapies have quadrupled since 1999, causing 165,000 fatal overdoses over the same period and now growing at more than 40 per day. 
primary care doctors who treat adults for chronic pain in outpatient settings account for nearly half of all opioid prescriptions, according to CDC. It defined chronic pain as lasting longer than three months, or past the typical time it takes for normal tissue healing. The new guidelines recommend non-opioids, including acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, and ibuprofen, which is Motrin or Advil, as preferred therapy for chronic pain unless patients have active cancer or are receiving palliative or end-of-life care. <clears throat> now, when I read that, I thought to myself, seriously, they expect these people to go off of narcotic painkillers and just take Tylenol or Advil? Um, most people's pain would just laugh at those two medicines. Um, this is really going to cause a lot of problems. Now, they also go on to recommend that when opioids are used, the lowest possible dose should be prescribed to reduce risks of opioid abuse and overdose, and patients should then be closely monitored. Uh, <clears throat> the drugs should also be combined with non-drug approaches to controlling pain, like physical therapy and exercise. Moreover, when starting opioid medications for chronic pain, doctors should prescribe immediate release formulations instead of long-acting versions, and they recommend doctors avoid prescribing opioid painkillers with sedatives uh, known as the benzodiazepines. Now, why are we making a point of that? Well, you know, we've talked before about the alarming reports of the increase in overdose deaths involving sedatives, uh, especially the benzodiazepines. Those are things like Valium, Librium, Clonopin, Ativan, Xanax. And if you look at people who are prescribed those medications, uh, a lot of them also take opioid painkillers and vice versa. But this is a very dangerous combination. And uh, if a patient is on both types of these medications, that significantly increases their risk of dying from a drug overdose. And uh, the combination, even if it doesn't result in death, um, significantly can increase the risk of falls, confusion, and uh, it can suppress breathing and respiration, which is especially dangerous for people who have COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or people who have sleep apnea, which is actually quite common. So again, the guidelines do sound very strict, um, but keep in mind, this is all designed to do something about the epidemic, and that is not an exaggeration. There is an epidemic of prescription drug overdose deaths in this country, largely involving both sedatives and opioid painkillers. <clears throat> now, the guidelines say that when prescribed for acute or short-term pain, doctors should prescribe the lowest effective dose of immediate-release 
opioids. They say that three days or less will often be sufficient. More than seven days will rarely be needed. Some studies suggest only five percent of patients prescribed opioids receive them for chronic pain, but they account for seventy percent of overall opioid prescriptions and the majority of overdoses. For the vast majority of patients taking opioids for chronic pain, risks from the drugs will outweigh benefits, Dr. Frieden said. He went on to say the prescription overdose epidemic is doctor-driven, and he added it can be reversed if doctors rein in their prescriptions of the painkillers. I wonder if they took a closer look at the statistics they cited, and if it would be possible to do so to determine that. All right, well, if only five percent of the patients who take them. Uh, account for 70% of the prescriptions and the majority of overdoses. How many of them are taking it not because they legitimately have severe chronic pain, but simply because they're addicted to the drugs and are either feeding their habit or trying to prevent going into withdrawal? However, you want to look at it. The American College of Physicians. Came out and said that the new guidelines provide important guidance at a time when many communities are being devastated by the adverse impact of opioid misuse. The most widely used opioids include hydrocodone, which is the main active ingredient of Vicodin, and oxycodone, an active ingredient of oxycontin and Percocet. They are synthetic narcotics, which work by binding to opioid receptors in the brain, and are mostly available in pill form. Nearly two million Americans, aged 12 or older, either abused or were dependent on prescription opioids in 2014, according to the CDC. Opioids also include heroin. An illegal injectable drug, which has become a far cheaper alternative to oral opioids on the streets of many U.S. communities, causing many overdoses. This is a particularly disturbing aspect of this epidemic. You have a situation where people get addicted to opioids by getting pills or treatment of pain. Maybe acute, maybe chronic pain, but then when it becomes too difficult or too expensive to continue to get prescriptions filled for these pills,、uh, again, you know, it could be due to expense, could be due to、uh, doctors setting limits, what have you. Many of these people are turning to heroin because it will prevent them from going into withdrawal. It will give them the same. Sort of euphoric feeling that they get from、uh, prescription pain pills. It's available on the street. You don't have to worry about getting a prescription and going to the doctor and so on. And worst of all, it's more widely available at a much lower price than in years past. So instead of people moving from、uh, abuse of 
illicit street drugs to prescription drugs, it's now going the other way around. Other United States health officials said that first responders should have wider access to naloxone, which is a drug that can reverse opioid overdoses. And that is changing. Indeed, uh, there are many, many movements um, headed toward making naloxone uh, very, very widely available, even uh, perhaps uh, to people in their homes, uh, in public places, uh, first responders, police, EMTs, what have you, doctor's offices. It really should be everywhere because you never know when you come across someone who's having a problem uh, withdrawing from opioid painkillers. All right, we're going to take a commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that, you are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. found a couple of articles I want to go over with you about Alzheimer's disease and uh, possible prevention or fighting it in any case. And then another one about uh, some hints and tips to keep your brain young. So uh, first of all, uh, this article says that there are different kinds of physical activity shown to improve brain volume, the volume of brain tissue, and also to cut the risk of Alzheimer's disease in half. That would be a pretty bold claim, a pretty important finding. So let's take a look at that. 
A new study shows that a variety of physical activities, from walking to gardening and dancing, can improve brain volume and cut the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 50%. The research conducted by investigators at the UCLA Medical Center and the University of Pittsburgh is the first to show that virtually any type of aerobic physical activity can improve brain structure and reduce Alzheimer's risk. The study, funded by the National Institute of Aging, was published on March 11 in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The researchers studied a long-term group of patients in the 30-year cardiovascular health study, 876 patients in all, across four research sites in the United States. These participants had longitudinal memory follow-up, which also included standard questionnaires about their physical activity habits. The research participants, age 78 on average, also had MRI scans of the brain analyzed by advanced computer algorithms to measure the volumes of brain structures, including those structures implicated in memory and Alzheimer's disease, such as the hippocampus. That's a structure in the temporal lobe of the brain that we know is key in memory. The physical activities performed by the participants were correlated to the brain volumes and spanned a wide variety of interests from gardening and dancing to riding an exercise cycle at the gym. Weekly caloric output from these activities was summarized. The results of the analysis showed that increasing physical activity was correlated with larger brain volumes in the frontal, temporal, and parietal lobes, including the hippocampus. Individuals experiencing this brain benefit from increasing their physical activity experienced a 50% reduction in their risk of Alzheimer's dementia. Of the roughly 25% in the sample who had mild cognitive impairment associated with Alzheimer's, increasing physical activity also benefited their brain volumes. The authors claim this is the first study in which they have been able to correlate the predictive benefit of different kinds of physical activity with the reduction of Alzheimer's risk through specific relationships with better brain volume in such a large sample. It is a decent-sized sample, almost 900 people. Currently, the greatest promise in Alzheimer's disease research is lifestyle intervention, including increased exercise. This study links exercise to increases in gray matter and opens the field of lifestyle intervention to objective biological measurement. According to the Alzheimer's Association, Alzheimer's disease currently affects 5.1 million Americans and is projected to increase to 13.8 million over the next 30 years. 
And one uh, author commented, we have no magic bullet cure for Alzheimer's disease. Our focus needs to be on prevention. I couldn't agree more. Uh, until and unless we learn more about the disease, the only thing we can reasonably do is learn what helps with prevention and encourage patients to do those things. What I find especially encouraging and positive about the results of the study is that it didn't require any specialized um, or uh, specific prescribed regimen of exercise um, and it didn't even talk about how long people exercised, how many hours a day, how many hours a week, or how many days a week, what have you. Just And it focused on p- things people enjoy doing, including gardening, you know, not going to the gym or using an exercise bike or whatever. It could include that, of course, but even gardening, other household chores, I'm sure, count, dancing. Um, things people enjoy doing anyway. Uh, So that's really the take-home message, I think, is to stay physically active. But it needn't be drudgery. It can be doing things you enjoy doing anyway. Just move is the key. Um, And that's uh, going to go a long way to uh, keep your brain healthy, uh, improve the volume of brain tissue, for goodness sake. That's impressive. And uh, cutting the risk of Alzheimer's by 50%, that is quite impressive indeed. Of course, you know, keep in mind that the effects of genetics cannot be overcome, right? You're born with the DNA you have, and there's nothing you can do about that. If it's if you're one of those people who has the gene that imparts a more severe risk of Alzheimer's, Uh, then not a whole lot can be done until and unless medicine comes up with better treatments. But as far as modifiable risk factors, that's very important. Um, So physical activity, as uh, this article demonstrates, very important. And then, of course, keeping your blood pressure under good control, keeping your blood sugar and your blood cholesterol Uh, under good control, and not smoking, and moderate with alcohol intake, Uh, all those things, and physical exercise, very important. Um, We also know that things like getting enough sleep is good for brain function. Uh, Get a minimum of seven hours of sleep, preferably eight. Uh, And as far as, you know, all the things that used to be talked about a lot, learn a foreign language, learn a musical instrument, um, so on and so forth, uh, playing video games that are designed to exercise your mind and improve your memory. They certainly wouldn't do any harm, but the only hard evidence um, is for exercise and being socially active, not for any of those other things that are often recommended. Now, diet is also very, very important. Eating a good, healthy diet is important to keep your mind healthy. Uh, Keep in mind, a heart-healthy diet is also a brain-healthy diet. So that means um, lean meats, 
Uh, lots of fresh fruits and vegetables with healthy fiber and antioxidants. Um, <clears throat> and uh, fish, very good brain food and uh, shown to be a bigger part of heart-healthy diets. People who have less incidence of heart attack and stroke are generally those who eat more fish. And among the fresh fruits that are highly recommended are berries. Berries are very rich in antioxidants, which the brain likes quite a bit. And um, that's my segue into our next article, uh, which makes the bold claim that blueberries could help combat Alzheimer's. Now, let's be clear that, again, like the author in the previous study said, there's no magic bullet, and blueberries are not going to be that. But I'm not going to stop you from running out and buying them and eating them. By all means, go ahead and do it. But let's take a look at what the study shows. <clears throat> As a superfood already prized for its antioxidant properties, new American research has now highlighted the benefits of blueberries on memory and cognitive function. This wonderberry could help combat the devastating effects of forms of dementia such as Alzheimer's disease. Already known for their potential to cut the risk of cancer and protect the heart, blueberries have now been studied for their effects on brain aging. I want to just emphasize before we even go further that this is not some uh, industry hype. Okay, This is real hard science documenting the previously known benefits of blueberries and new research. This is not like the acai uh, berry who uh, the people who sold the juice of that claimed it would help you lose weight, which of course was just hype. And uh, it's not like other supplements or foods that uh, purportedly have health benefits over and above what's on the market. Uh, and, and again, this is nothing exotic. This is the common blueberry that you find in, on your supermarket shelf. Previous studies have shown that daily consumption of blueberries can reduce blood pressure in just eight weeks. As for the brain, a study published in April of 2013 found that the polyphenols contained in blueberries encourage autophagy, which is a cellular self-cleaning process, it, what it does is it removes toxic proteins that build up in the brain. So perhaps it's removing uh, beta amyloid, which is the toxic protein that you see built up in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. The latest study monitored 47 American adults aged 68 and older who already had mild cognitive impairment, which is normally considered to be a precursor to developing Alzheimer's disease. So uh, the study is done with people who are already showing early signs. And 47 people is a very, very small study, so that certainly limits the generalizability of the conclusions. Um, actually, I think what we'll do is we'll pause here, take our next commercial break. When we come back, we'll continue looking at the methods of this study and then go over the results and discuss its implications. 
Uh, so we'll be right back after this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. And right now we're discussing a study that found that eating blueberries could help combat Alzheimer's disease. Okay, now uh, again, this were uh, 47 people who were the study subjects. They were age 68 and older, already had mild cognitive impairment, an early sign of Alzheimer's disease. Now, what they did was over a period of 16 weeks, researchers from the University of Cincinnati gave participants either freeze-dried blueberry powder equivalent to a cup of berries or a placebo powder once a day. kind of wish they had given them fresh blueberries, don't you? Well, all right, well, we'll see what the study results showed anyway. Those given blueberry powder saw their memory improve with better access to words and concepts. An MRI scan of the brain showed more intense brain activity in this group of participants compared with those given the placebo powder. A second experiment focused on 94 people aged 62 to 80 who subjectively felt that their memories were declining, although they did not have any objectively measured cognitive issues. In other words, these people test normal for memory function. And these participants were split into four groups and given either blueberry powder, fish oil, fish oil and blueberry powder, or a placebo. Now, uh, before we even talk about the results of this, um, I would remind you that previous research on more than one occasion has not found any benefit of fish oil 
in terms of improving cognitive function, which doesn't mean you shouldn't take it. Uh, there are better reasons to take it than for cognitive function anyway. Uh, fish, eating fish has been found to help relieve bipolar depression. Um, and uh, it's also very heart healthy, so it's certainly good for you in other ways, even if it doesn't help with cognitive function. Now, this second study found a certain degree of improvement in cognitive function in those subjects who were given the blueberry powder or the fish oil. However, there was no improvement in memory, and the MRI scan showed little specific increase in activity. From these two experiments, the study's authors conclude that eating blueberries can be beneficial when a cognitive impairment is already established. Blueberries may be more effective in treating patients with cognitive impairments, but may not show measurable benefit for those with minor memory issues or who have not yet developed cognitive problems. Well, that's all well and good, but I think wouldn't a better question be, does eating them help prevent cognitive problems from developing in the first place? Well, to that end, scientists plan to carry out a similar experiment on younger people aged 50 to 65 who are at risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Those risk factors include obesity, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol in order to determine whether blueberries can help prevent the onset of Alzheimer's symptoms. Alzheimer's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder that causes the progressive and irreversible destruction of neurons. Currently, 5.3 million Americans are affected by the disease, but this could rise by 40% to 7 million by 2025 and triple by 2050 according to the Alzheimer's Association. So there you have it. It wouldn't take waiting for that next study to convince me to eat my blueberries. I would do that if I were you. Um, rich in antioxidants, healthy for your brain, and uh, never mind the fish oil supplements, eating the fish is better, but again, not because it might necessarily improve cognitive function or prevent Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, we get that there's no evidence to, to show that, but still good reasons to eat fish or take fish oil. Helping uh, with mood um, is certainly a good enough reason. <clears throat> and now uh, a study showing that if you want a younger brain, uh, scientists suggest that you stay in school and take the stairs. Education and physical activity can significantly slow down gray matter aging. Researchers found that brain age decreases by 0.95 years for each year of education and by 0.58 years for every daily flight of stairs climbed. Wow, so you can decrease your brain age quite a bit by studying more and taking the stairs. Well, let's 
take a closer look at the study and its findings, taking the stairs is normally associated with keeping your body strong and healthy. But new research shows that it improves your brain's health, too, and that education also has a positive effect. In a study recently published in the journal Neurobiology of Aging, researchers show that the more flights of stairs a person climbs and the more years of school a person completes, the younger their brain physically appears. The researchers found that brain age decreases by 0.95 years for each year of education and by 0.58 years for every daily flight of stairs climbed. There already exist many take the stairs campaigns in office environments and public transportation centers. This study shows that these campaigns should also be expanded for older adults so that they can work to keep their brains young. For the study, researchers used magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, to non-invasively examine the brains of 331 healthy adults who ranged in age from 19 to 79. They measured the volume of gray matter found in participants' brains because its decline caused by shrinkage and loss of brain cells is a very visible part of the chronological aging process. Then they compared brain volume to the participants reported number of flights of stairs climbed and years of schooling completed. Well, <clears throat> right here and then I want to pause for a second and say, well, you know, this is the participants reported number of flights of stairs climbed uh, perhaps their reports weren't accurate. So to me, I think that definitely limits the conclusions of the study. Uh, it would have been a cleaner design and more reliable result if uh, they actually set out to say, okay, well, um, we're going to actually track how many stairs you climb a day. Maybe put one of these um, activity trackers on these people and not just measure steps, but uh, uh, ascend, ascension, not just uh, walking. But in any case, uh, we'll look at what they found, the way they did it, which is that the results were clear. The more flights of stairs climbed and the more years of schooling completed, the younger appearing the brain. And the authors stated that the study shows that education and physical activity affect the difference between a physiological prediction of age and chronological age, and that people can actively do something to help their brains stay young. In comparison to many other forms of physical activity, taking the stairs is something most older adults can and already do at least once a day, unlike vigorous forms of physical activity. This is encouraging because it demonstrates that a simple thing like climbing stairs has great potential as an intervention tool to promote brain health.
Well, you know, I think there's probably nothing particularly magical about uh, climbing the stairs as it compares to any other physical activity. If you recall the study we talked about earlier in tonight's podcast, it could be anything uh, that, that helps when it comes to uh, Alzheimer's prevention. So certainly the same would apply in, in terms of looking at the uh, aging and appearance of the brain. Uh, that study talked about gardening, dancing, what have you. So again, really the, this, the take-home message is the same. Staying physically active keeps your brain younger and healthier and uh, will forestall the effects of brain aging in general, uh, and as the earlier study mentioned, uh, Alzheimer's in particular. All right, now, um, next on tonight's episode of Psychiatry Today, we're going to significantly shift gears away from studies of the brain and memory and that sort of thing, and we're going to talk about uh, <clears throat> something a little less physically t- tangible. We're going to talk about how self-criticism can be psychologically devastating and how to overcome it. Uh, when I saw this article, I thought it would be useful and interesting to uh, discuss with you because uh, severe self-criticism, where people are just constantly berating themselves and thinking they're a complete and utter failure uh, is a symptom common to many major psychiatric syndromes. Uh, It's certainly a cardinal and common symptom in major depressive disorder and also bipolar depression, but it's also a symptom commonly seen in schizophrenia and also anxiety disorders, these severe, persistent, guilty, negative ruminations. People blame themselves for things unnecessarily and excessively and seeing themselves as uh, no good and a failure. So the article talks about that symptom and what to do about it. We'll get to that and more mental health-related news when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. 
Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're now going to talk about self-criticism, how it can be psychologically devastating, and how to overcome it. From a very early age, we learn, in a manner of speaking, to nitpick ourselves. We take information from those we encounter and the world around us to fine-tune how we act and who we are, taking note of what doesn't work in an ongoing internal dialogue that stretches back to childhood. The healthy form of self-criticism may involve a child evaluating his or her own behavior, like what not to do, based on cues from parents and teachers. Constructive self-critiquing can help with proper development, plus everything from preserving relationships to towing the line professionally. But for some, harsher self-criticism, often deeply rooted in his or her upbringing, can prove psychologically and in certain cases even physically devastating. Self-criticism is a tendency to set unrealistically high self-standards and to adopt a punitive, derogatory stance toward the self once these are not met, as invariably they are not because of their ever-raising nature. This internal Negative bent can have severe consequences. Self-criticism is a trait that has been shown to lead to numerous forms of psychopathology, including depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder symptoms, and eating disorders. It can lead to psychosomatic symptoms, whereby the mental struggles manifest in physical problems, such as chronic fatigue and pain, and under the weight of the mounting mental health burden, some take their own lives. The seeds of self-criticism are planted early. It's caused by two possible factors, harsh, critical, and punitive family relationships, or a very vulnerable genetics embedding the tendency to look inwardly and seek flaws. And, of course, both factors can combine to play a role. Now, according to one author, um, Golan Shahar, who wrote the book Erosion, the Psychopathology of Self-Criticism, he says the primary origin is critical parents. That usually is where it starts, having overly critical parents or parents who have unreasonable expectations of their children. Now, when I first read this, I said, well, you know, to me that's a, 
a little bit controversial because many, many decades ago, before science revealed the genetic and biological origins of mental illness, unfortunately, much of uh, theory about major psychiatric syndromes was attributed to deficient parenting. And uh, this was uh, not fair at all. Um, for the vast majority of cases, none of that has anything to do with parenting. It is biologically based. And uh, so parents, especially mothers, were often blamed quite unfairly. And these stereotypes persist to this day. Um, Patients commonly report their mothers get very defensive when they find out they've gone to see uh, a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist. And, um, you know, it's, it's been all too uh, convenient an excuse to blame things on bad parenting, even ADHD, which we know uh, has nothing to do with parenting. It's uh, genetic and um, has other determinants, but the parenting is not one of them. Well, in any case, um, the authors also talk about other components, such as childhood trauma, including sexual abuse, physical abuse, as well as emotional abuse, which can cause a child to feel tremendous shame. And that shame is at the core of self-criticism. The same egocentric perspective healthy children naturally have that the world revolves around them makes them feel they're responsible for everything that happens to them, especially when it involves their parents. But even when it isn't a parent, the child will blame themselves, especially with sexual abuse. It is quite common for children who are going through their parents getting divorced, that, well, if mommy and daddy aren't going to live together anymore, it must have been because I was bad. I did something wrong. And um, this is extremely common, has nothing to do with whether or not either of the divorcing parents says anything to one of the kids. This is just very typical that a kid will reach that conclusion, and uh, it's quite typical that they need repeated reassurance that that was not the case um, over months, if not even a year or more. Now, <clears throat> parents routinely rec don't recognize when they're being overly critical. Uh, overly critical parents meaning those who find fault in what their children do a lot more than they give encouragement. The parent's focus is a negative focus on the child, kind of always looking for the child to do something wrong versus encouraging or giving the child any kind of accolades whatsoever. Uh, <clears throat> in so doing, parents are commonly inflicting an internal family legacy upon their children, passing on the same sort of derision they received as a child from their parents. And I have uh, heard of and even read about uh, people who suggest 
that uh, parents in the modern age are too quick to lavish excessive praise on their children, and um, they advocate uh, more criticism uh, that uh, comes from what they see as appropriate guidance the parents are supposed to give their children. But uh, that can be overdone, and uh, children definitely do need uh, praise and accolades um, and not just constant criticism. One of the primary forms of emotional abuse of parents to children is this horribly self-critical stance. Being hyper-disciplined and pushing children toward high levels of achievement alone doesn't constitute mistreatment. Still, experts say demanding parents, like the so-called tiger moms, should be cautious not to go too far. Tiger moms are generally more overly protective than overly critical, but the way they can inflict damage on their children is by being perfectionists and pushing their children beyond their limits. Parents must be very cautious about being punitive and derogatory toward their children, since children can internalize this in the way they treat themselves. Instructing children and pointing out and even sanctioning bad behavior is important, of course, but this never or almost never should be translated toward attacking the child's core being, where the child will internalize it and follow suit. Ultimately, many who endure bullying or abuse incorporate that in how they relate to themselves. You might start to kind of attack yourself in the same way you've been attacked. What is interesting is that once self-criticism has developed, it spreads around like an infectious virus. Self-critical children make their parents even more self-critical toward them, and they create criticism-based relationships with siblings, peers, and teachers. The process unfolds over the lifespan, resulting in a strong self-critical identity. This creates obstacles for the children, even while parents may think they're helping kids get ahead in life. Those hurdles can trip them up as adults, too. Self-critics fear that others might criticize and reject them, and inadvertently evoke these very reactions. They isolate themselves from people and refrain from engaging in pleasurable activities. The end result is emotional disorders, primarily depression and anxiety, among other psychological issues. In adolescence and young adulthood, such distress may feed back to self-criticism and bolster it. I feel so bad something must be deficient in me. This process can be called the self-critical cascade. Treatment of psychological issues can be complicated by the fact that many self-critical people blame themselves for their mental health struggles and may punish themselves by not seeking treatment. But it's possible to tweak the internal dialogue and find a more positive way forward, particularly using an antidote to shame, self-compassion. 
When a self-critical voice spirals out of control and leads to mental health issues, or when a person finds, for example, that they're self-sabotaging, not allowing successes and positive moments to stand, finding ways to create problems or undermine long-term goals, it's important to seek professional help. Therapy can also help parents break the cycle so they don't continue to pass on a harsh legacy to children. Therapy can help patients to base their behavior on those benign, benevolent voices that they can cultivate rather than the self-critical ones. The idea is you can recognize and sort of verbalize those internal attitudes, talk through what the origins were of the self-criticism, then you may be able to separate the part of yourself that's more balanced or more positive from the self-critical part. Then you can start to say, okay, that's maybe a part of me, it's not all of me. So it's like the difference between saying you've experienced failure versus you are a failure, an important distinction. Well, that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. I hope you enjoyed this information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it interesting and informative. And I hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.